First off, I'd like to let everybody know that horses have quite literally been galloping through Montana for about 50 million years. And that's, I think, the core of what I was discovered when I began to research the history of horse racing in Montana. Um, I spend just a quick minute pointing out that um, down in Wyoming, they dug up some of the earliest fossils of horses in Wind River Range. Um, of course, evolved in North America. But at, the, um, at about the end of the last ice age, about 10,000 years ago, horses went extinct in North America. It correlated in time to the arrival of humans, how much was the change in climate, how much was um, a species with a new predator, we don't know, and the experts argue. But um, those of us who are horse people know about this ex great extinction um, practically from the day we pick up our first copy of The Black Stallion or Misty of Chinkatig or Black Beauty. Um, but a lot of people outside the horse world, including my husband, were surprised to know that. So just a quick touching basis that the horse evolved from a swamp-dwelling little creature about the size of a border collie to one of the first, um, the Hagerman horse, which was the first representative of genus Equus, um, right up here in the Northern Rockies. So um, 10,000 years later, Fernand Cortez landed in Mexico with 16 horses, and they returned. And as we know, at first that didn't go so well for the people who were already here, but folks adapted very quickly. And the pathway of the horse to Montana, um, we think now that horses got here somewhere by 1680, which means they could have been here a little before that. Um, earlier sources put the date later, but they were relying mostly on what white people said and especially English and French explorers. Um, when you start going into the Spanish sources, plus you get historians like Francis Haynes, who was also a horseman and said, you know, who are the horse people in here? There's gotta be horse people in here. Um, you know that you don't just, it's not like adopting a kitten from the shelter. There's a certain skill set that's required. Um, it's a challenge. You don't just you know, have the magic unicorn lay its head in your lap. It doesn't work that way. And so the expertise to become skilled riders takes a while. And that was also part of Haynes' research. Between the 30s and the 70s, he completely did a 180 on what he thought about the arrival of forces in the northern plains. So we attribute the horse riding in Montana via the Shoshone. And they, we have a whole pathway from Mexico and Spain to the Apache to the, the uh, Pueblo Revolt, um, all the way through the 1600s. Um, and then the Shoshone, pretty much once they got horses, they sold them to everybody. And the um, first horses we think arrived via the west of the Divide and were sold to the Salish. There's another group of horses where Joe Medicine Crow, who was an, uh, a Salica historian, talks about the, um, what he said, the, the Mountain Crow folks picking up horses possibly around 1675 
and then from there moving into Montana. And of course, we didn't have lines on maps back then, so these are all estimates. But once the Salish people and everyone else within what is today Montana got a hold of horses, um, they became just a completely integral part of the culture. People's economy changed. Uh, there were tribes who moved hundreds of miles from where they had originally been. Um, and this is one of my favorite, Charlie Russell's. We all know this one of the House of Representatives in um, up at the Capitol. Lewis and Clark made the Indians at Lost Hole. Um, and this was an example of the Salish. And what you see, all the detail in this image, but among other things, I was like how you see some people up there in the corner of that image racing their ponies to come into the camp and see what's going on. Um, once Montana settled, a lot of people asked me about Racetrack Montana over there by Deer Lodge. That was not a traditional racetrack. That was an area where Native folks met up and had intertribal competitions. There's a long straightaway out there. They think it's by Cleveland Road if there's any folks from Powell County here. And that, that was where the match races break up on long straightaways. Um, which was one of the reasons why the image that began this talk showed an example of that. Once we start seeing settlers arrive, the miners were racing their horses down the main streets of the towns they created. Um, Virginia City is a good example of this particular picture. They would actually close off um, Virginia City's Jackson Street and Wallace Streets every Sunday to hold horse races. And uh, they did the same thing in Glendale, Montana, where a gentleman named Noah Armstrong made a fortune in silver. Of course, miners needed to eat. And pretty soon, people figured out that uh, cattle on the hoof were a good way to feed them. And so once the cattle arrived, the cowhands arrived with them. And it was said that every cowboy loved to have a horse that had thoroughbred breeding. And racing was one of his favorite pastimes. Um, and so this image, the pen and ink, is a race to the wagons from the Montana Historical Society. And it's a, a, another Charlie Russell. Now, once you get enough population that you want spectators, and you need to have judges who can see the entire race, what do you do? You build a round track. And so the first round or old tracks in Montana came in pretty early. Um, if anybody wants to know what was happening in the rest of the world, Churchill Downs was built in 1876. We beat them. Helena had a track before Churchill Downs. Um, our first track in Helena was the first known organized race meet, um, which was actually not at today's fairgrounds. It was at a place called Madame Cody's. Uh, she had a, it was on 10 Mile Creek but her club was called the Two Mile House. I think the idea was it was two miles from the city limits at the time and roughly intersection of Bedman and Lindale. You go out two miles and you're roughly at 10 Mile Creek. Um, I've got some friends in here. We've been trying to solve the mystery of exactly where Madame Cody's trap was. Might be where Spring Meadow Lake is today. That was the reason I grabbed the pit before that. 
sandy grounds, a really good place for a racetrack. It could have also been on the other side of Ten Mile Creek, out by the Archie Gray or by the new Ten Mile Creek Park. So we're still trying to solve that mystery. But then Lewis and Clark County, we built a fairgrounds and the track that still has three quarters of it left today in 1870. So that was, by the way, the same year Pimlico opened in Maryland. Um, Bowman's track in Deer Lodge opened in 1869, and this image, the um, black and white image, as you're looking at the screen on the right, is some races in Deer Lodge, possibly at that track, in 1909. Um, Bozeman built a track in 1871, Missoula had one in 1876, and uh, I always like to add really bad horse puns to my presentations. It was at this point we were off the races. <laughs> now, before long, the people who had the money to go back east and return with horses, um, this included Conrad Kors and his half-brother John Gielenberg, a number of other people, Noah Armstrong, who built that dog in the round barn in Twin Bridges, the Doncaster barn, and they got a hold of some pretty good horses. Um, in 1889, Armstrong's horse, Spokane, um, pulled right here in Montana, down in Clay Bridges, won the Kentucky Derby. And it was an amazing thing because the horse he defeated was named Proctor Knott, who was named after a much beloved uh, Kentucky governor and was supposed to be the greatest horse that went through a bridle and why did we need to run the derby because Proctor Knott was going to win but Spokane beat him and launched a real press feeding frenzy in its time and uh, both the residents of Spokane Falls, Washington Territory as well as the residents of Montana uh, promoted the West as horse country. The um, image at the top was the Butte Jockey Club. And this particular photo was taken in 1914, which was, uh, we'll get to this later, this was right before the Montana legislature banned gambling and totally destroyed the industry. But basically between 1889 and 1915, Montana had a golden age of horse racing. The arrival of the railroads allowed horses to be shipped in from Chicago, from California, from Kansas, Iowa, and every other point possible. Butte ran a horse racing meet that grew to be 60 days long, and Honda had a meet that ran 30 days, and uh, especially the nearby communities such as Helena and Bozeman also ran race meets that piggybacked off of these bigger ones. So people in anywhere in the country could just ship their horses out here to Montana as soon as the snow melted and stayed here until it started to fly again. They actually tried to run a race meet in Butte in October. And all of us are looking out the window right now. And that's about, I think, what the weather was like. Um, one of the first meets they did run when they started to do track. Now, the king of Montana racing became Marcus Bailey. This image is his Anaconda Driving Park, built in 1888. We don't have a date on this photo, but it burned down about 1915, right when they banned gambling due to a fire of mysterious origin. Um, but that was Daly's show place. 
He also uh, purchased that view track, and the view jug club image we saw was also the grandstand that he commissioned to have built in Butte. He gave his miners and his smelter workers days off with pay to go to the races, where probably he earned back all their salary and wagering losses, but you know, they had a good time. Uh, the Butte track had two taverns. You could buy one shot of whiskey for 12 and a half cents, or more likely two for 25. Um, the Anaconda track was, uh, was called a driving park. It started out with trotting horses, but in those days, harness racing was more popular than what we now think of as the running races, the uh, galloping horses, the thoroughbreds. Kind of in a way like we compare today NASCAR Formula One. Harness racing was the racing of the common man or woman. You could have a nice, fast little trotting horse, hook him up to a lightweight sulky, go down to the fairgrounds, and win some money. It was, it was something anyone could do. Daly did it better than most. Some of his horses, he started out with trotters, and this really blurry, bad quality image um, that I would give my eye teeth to find a better one is a horse named Prodigal. That was his trotting champion. Um, he didn't race very much, but he sired a number <laughs> of wonderful harness racing horses, one of whom, China Silk, went to Kentucky, won everything. Daly, in his hunt for timber to use in his mines in Butte, needed an unlimited supply and he founded the Bitterroot. Um, those of you who studied the Copper Kings, you know all of the various dramas and the breakdown of the factions of Clark and Daly. Um, when Daly found the Bitterroot, he also found a beautiful ranch that he purchased and named it Riverside. Then he bought the neighboring ranch and another neighboring ranch and another neighboring ranch until he had 22,000 acres and he called it the Bitterroot Stock Farm. There, along with agricultural pursuits, cattle, uh, workhorses, Shetland ponies, you name it, he brought in thoroughbreds. And he, he died in 1900 at the age of 58. I think the biggest surprise when I was working on the book that I wrote, Montana Horse Racing, A History, um, when that research, I came across the daily material, it blew my socks off. If Daly had lived another 10 years, probably the thoroughbred world today would still be talking about the Marcus Daly horses. He purchased a small farm in England. He hired a gentleman by the name of Ed Tipton, who we now hear that name if you're in the thoroughbred industry from the basic Tipton Sales Company, which is one of those places where they sell the yearlings every, every autumn for millions and millions of dollars to the millionaires and the hundreds of millionaires and the Saudi royal princes and so on. Um, Ed Tipton was hired by Marcus Daly. Tipton helped run the Vietnam tracks. He went to England and helped purchase horses for Daly, shipped them to America. One of those horses is this dark, dark colored horse. For those of you who don't know about horses, he's a dark bay, some people call him brown. His name was Ogden. He was both in England, 
shipped as a either a suckling or a weanling bull along with his mother, his dam, Oriole, to America. He won the Futurity Stakes here as a, in um, New York as a two-year-old. And then Daly um, had him all prepped to go as a three-year-old and run in the Belmont Stakes, which today we call the Test of the Champion. And just to be sure that Ogden would win, he brought another horse that he didn't particularly care for. His name was Scottish Chieftain. And Chieftain, he was, uh, he ran in the Futurity Stakes and as a two-year-old, kind of light egg, but he had early speed. And so they entered into what they could call a rabbit. And a rabbit is a very fast horse that is supposed to get out front early, make everybody chase him, get tired, and then the other horse, whose jockey is on to the plan, is biding his time, comes from behind and wins. That was the plan. Scottish Chieftain didn't agree. He went to the lead. He fought off two horses from the Whitney stables who were trying to double team him and do the same thing, and won the Belmont. Ogden <laughs> came in last. <laughs> but the king of the stock farm was this little chestnut horse with a little blaze down his face that looks like a backward question mark, and his name was Tammany. Now, Tammany um, was purchased by Daly when he was a yearling. He got him in the Midwest, I think it was Illinois. Um, brought him out to Montana. He did, uh, he grew up a little bit here, then they sent him east. And the gentleman that's holding him, his name is Matt Burns, and he was Daly's lead trainer on the East Coast. And Tammany was doing very, very well, but he had a rival named Lamplighter. And Lamplighter was winning a lot of races too. And Lamplighter's owner was trash talking Daly, my horse is better than your horse. And finally they got together when Tammany was a four-year-old and had a match race. Daly declared, if Tammy wins, I'll build the castle. Tammy liked that. He won. He won handily. Daly retired, brought him to the Bitterroot, built a horse barn that was named Tammy's Castle. Still stands today. It's been converted to a private residence. I'm sure if they put it on the market, it would be worth over a million dollars. It's a beautiful place. Um, interestingly, if you go to Hamilton, any folks here from Hamilton? Um, there's Tammany, you know, Tammany Square, Tammany Lane, Tammany Road, um, daily like Tammany. The image in the center is fairly famous. This is the Tammany Mosaic. This was a hardwood inlay that Daly had commissioned. He paid $3,000 for it. It still exists. It's about four feet by four feet. I know because I was at the Daly Mansion and we were moving it out to the hall so I could take a picture of it. Um, this was in the floor of the Montana Hotel in Anaconda. And Daly had a rule. Does anybody, any Anaconda folks here? What's the legend? There's another rule. If you step on his head, you have to buy everybody a drink. Exactly. <laughs> you, and Daly, he, he, he set that rule, and it was enforced. I'm sure if you've been, matter of fact, we're at Lewis Midland Inter. Midland. Just the hotel, they're doing the renovations there. Mm -hmm. When I went through Anaconda last time, that was 
So apparently when this got re kind of word got out that this was at the Daily Mansion, apparently there's now a little battle between the Daily Mansion in Hamilton and the town of Anaconda because when the Montana Hotel went through a lot of kind of disastrous, um, not exactly remodeling, more like deconstruction, they tore the mosaic out of the floor and the Daily Estate snapped it up quickly before it was lost. Um, and they've been preserving it ever since, but apparently Anaconda wants it back. So anybody, you know, if you want to take bets, Hamilton or Anaconda for the home of the Tammany Mosaic, I think that we're going to need to buy popcorn and watch that show. It's a great battle. Now what happened in 1915 is that as part of the progressive era reforms, you know, ultimately culminating in prohibition, legislature banned gambling. And that caused pretty much the destruction of the uh, entire horse racing industry, the end of Montana's golden age of racing. People began to race for jackpots and small purses. They tried and failed about three different times to legalize paramutual wagering because there had been some movements on the East Coast. They said, well, bookmakers are all crooked, but this paramutual thing, you know, people are just betting money amongst themselves. And they decided to test this idea. After Sam Stewart vetoed a paramutual bill, bill in 1921 failed, everybody regrouped. And right here in Helena, in 1925, Mr. Toomey happened to be counsel to the governor. We went down to the Helena meet, he wanted to watch the horses race. And somebody cooked up this thing called Florida. It was called a co-ownership. And what you did is you, uh, this was all perfectly legal, supposedly. You'd go to the window and you would buy a share in your racehorse. Then you would pay $2 to enter your share of the horse in the race. That money went into a jackpot. And then if your horse won, you and everybody else who had a share in that horse would split the jackpot. We're not using the word paramutual gambling here. Well, Mr. Toomey made a bad decision. He bet on a horse named Florence Fryer. He should have known better. And Florence Fryer lost. When she lost, he sued the Fairborn. He said, I lost my $2 in an illegal game. So you should pay me not just my $200, but you know, punitive damages and actual losses and chronically emotional distress. Well, the fair board struck back. Anybody in Helena remembers Judge Lester Lowell? He was a young, went behind the ears attorney, um, advised wisely by two other members of the legal team named, uh, well, they were, uh, uh, the names are escaping me right now, but it was a former federal judge and he retired Supreme Court Justice. And in the Toomey v. v. Penwell decision of 1926, a unanimous Montana Supreme Court declared that jackpots were not illegal, horse racing was never illegal, and in one fell swoop, eviscerated the paramutual law, or the anti-gambling law. Took a couple years for the legislature to figure out how to word it, but they changed the statute in 1929 and the races were on again. The first place to take advantage of this was Great Falls. 
every other county fair in the state was trying to bring back paramutuals as fast as they could get the machines into the state. But Great Falls built a brand new fairgrounds that still stands today. Started racing in 1931. It had a long history of racing. It is one of the few tracks still running in Montana today. A couple of images here. Um, there are three different tracks. The second one was Black Eagle Park. Um, I wanted to mention just briefly the biggest tragedy in Montana horse racing was in 1946 when an air show went horribly awry. The three bombers closed into formation over the track. Wing of one clipped off the tail section of the other, resulting in the plane crashing at the final turn of the track, plowing through a horse barn, set it on fire, 19 horses died. Uh, both pilots in the plane, three people on the ground, and the plane whose wing clipped off the tail section. Also, the, the pilots were heroes, they veered off, crashed in the hills north of town, and also lost their lives. It was quite a tragedy. There's, um, I interviewed for my book, Joe Bird Rattler. Um, also had a lot of help from uh, Ken Robinson, who writes a lot of Montana history. Both of them were there when that crash occurred and remember it quite distinctly. But Great Falls Fair, the State Fair Race Meet, was much beloved right from its outset. Um, the governor opened the 1931 meet. And of course, Governor Erickson, what you must remember, was governor when Mr. Toomey was his lawyer making that bet on Florence Fryer. I love the then and now images, the Great Falls meet, still runs today, and I love to read, I was having a lot of fun recreating images. The, the top one is from about 1946 to 1947, the bottom image, almost the same position, 2018. When the Montana Constitution in 1972 expanded gambling, and I'm, um, sorry, there we go. Okay, I'm trying, there we go. Um, expanded gambling, it was building on some things that were beginning to happen. In 1965, there was a horse racing commission formed to legal up to kind of improve the regulation of racing. It formed about the time that a gentleman named Lloyd Shellhammer built a track that he called the Beaumont Club in Belgrade, Montana. Um, he had a supper club, he brought in Las Vegas bands, he served lobster thermidor and frog's legs along with the best steaks you ever saw, had dancing every night, and for about 10 years was quite a going concern. He went on to create a business called United Tote, which today um, it was the first company to computerize paramutual wagering, and today Shellhammer, um, the family sold out United Tote. It is a whole, uh, subsidiary of Churchill Downs Incorporated, still in business today. Um, very quick timeline. The second golden age of Montana horse racing really did begin with the creation of the Horse Racing Commission in 65. Then the 72 Constitution allowed expanded gambling in Montana. By 1984, we had 143 days of racing, 14 tracks, wagering handle of $11.8 million. That's how much money people like us were pushing through the windows at county fairs and organizing meets across the state. Billings and Great Falls both ran over a month every summer. Um, we had a real going concern. 
The expansion of gaming took a lot of people's wagering dollars from the, from the tracks to the taverns. I interviewed a gentleman named John Tomoski for my book. He raced horses here in Montana for many years. And he said, when poker machines take people's money, they ain't got no money to bet on the horses. And that's kind of what happened. Today, we have two licensed tracks remaining, one in Great Falls, one in Miles City. In 2018, wagering handle was about $500,000. So we've seen quite a decline because of the competition from other forms of wagering. There is, however, a promising future for horse racing in Montana. People say there's two meets in Montana. I say, no, there are four. Because both Pro Fair and North American Indian Days run traditional meets. They bring in a gate. They, um, Pro Fair, we've got pictures. The jockeys have track silks. They don't have track silks at Brownie. This is at Brownie. Um, the girl, the woman on the winning horse is um, Holly Gervais, she's one of Montana's top jockeys. I love her. She is about, I'm, she's not going to say her age exactly, but let's just say that I believe she celebrated her 50th birthday um, and was still riding this year. Sorry, Great Falls. She was limping a little bit. I think she fell off a horse, but she'll, she'll ride till she dies. She's awesome. Um, Kid in the Red Helmet, uh, little Joe Bird Rattler, Joe Bird Rattler's grandson, 14 years old, and his first race meet. Um, you normally have to be 16 to race in Montana, uh, but not up and around. So the future is in reservation meets, and I do think it is also an Indian relay, which allows me to close this talk and turn it over to my co-presenter. Um, and I just want to thank everyone for letting me give you a presentation today. If you're interested, I do have a book for sale across the hall in the vendor area, and. Um, after Mr. Oldhorn does his talk, we'll have a Q&A, and then I'll head on across the hall if anybody would like to talk to me further.